I just want to say thanks to all of you joining us online. I know there's a number of people, uh, about 100 people a week that join us online consistently and faithfully. And so you're part of our family, even though you're not here in the room. And so uh, what I would love to do is to hear from you. If you're watching online, if you're one of our faithful uh, viewers, would you drop us a line? Would you send us an email at info at betheltab.ca? I've met some people recently and they say, hey, we're, we're, we're there with you. We're consistent. Uh, but I don't want you just to to be a number or a YouTube view. I would love to know who you are. So would you send us an email to say, hey, we're joining you online each week. We'd love the opportunity to connect with you in that way. And for all of you that are joining us here live and in person, we're so glad to have you with us today. Hey, let's dive right in. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. We've been in this series the past four weeks called Brick by Brick, going through the book of Nehemiah. And so I want to jump right in. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15 says, So on October the 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after we had begun. Now, if you have an older version of the Bible, maybe the King James, it'll tell you in the year of, of this or that, you know, but uh, theologians have narrow, narrowed it down to the fall month of October, and the wall is finished 52 days after they began. Now, here's the 30-second synopsis. If, if, if you haven't been with us, I don't want you to be lost. And the, about 587 B.C., the Jewish uh, people in the uh, city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah uh, are occupied by the Babylonians. Babylonian uh, Empire, and thousands of Jews are taken back to Babylon in captivity. The uh, city of Jerusalem is completely decimated, along with its temples, its homes, and its city walls. All this infrastructure burned and demolished to the ground. Well, Babylon itself is soon uh, swallowed up within the Persian Empire under King Artaxerxes. And uh, for 70 years, these Jewish captives are, are in exile, which simply means they're taken from their homes, they're taken to another land, and they live in captivity. But after 70 years, some of them are be allowed to begin to go back to their homeland to begin to rebuild the city. And so we see in the book of Ezra that Zerubbabel goes and he builds the temple. And then uh, Ezra himself goes and begins to do some work in the city of Jerusalem. Well, while they've been in captivity, other tribes and people had settled in the area. They'd grown more powerful. And as the Jews began to return to their city, there was a lot of strife and conflict that we've been talking about. They've been antagonistic towards the rebuilding efforts. And uh, even though they got the temple rebuilt and some of their homes, the majority of the city and its walls still continue to lay in ruin. So Nehemiah, he's a servant, a Jewish servant, but he's serving in the Persian king's uh, personal entourage as a cupbearer. Uh, his role is basically to make sure the king doesn't get poisoned uh, by tasting everything before the king. So if there was poison, Nehemiah would die first. So just imagine that kind of job. You know, that's an incredible job that he had. But he hears that the, that the city is lying in ruins, that it's vulnerable and defenseless. And so he begins to pray that God would do something about it. Begin to say, God, would you do something to restore uh, the, the, the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah? Would you do something about this great nation that you called your own? And so he begins to have this burden for the state of his people, and he begins to have a vision for what could be. And so Nehemiah, he does something amazing. He sets into motion this plan that includes him being willing to be the answer to his own prayer. How many know we need to be willing to be the answer to our own prayers at times? 
And so he gets permission from the king to go and rebuild the city. And we talked about this in week one. Not only does he get permission to go, but he also talks the king into financing the project. And so that's a pretty awesome opportunity. Over the last two weeks, we've talked about this idea that as the walls got higher, so did the level of opposition that the Jews faced. And so I'm sure that there were days that Nehemiah was, you know, just thinking like, you know, I don't know if we're going to make it. You know, there's probably some sleepless nights where he wondered, what have I gotten myself into? You know, is it worth all the persecution and opposition? How am I going to get out of this? But here we find in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, the broken wall, broken down walls of Jerusalem are finally uh, repaired. They've been lying in rubble for the past 170 years. And finally, here in chapter 6, we see that they stand restored. I I got looking a little bit into what these walls uh, were like. 52 days to repair them without power tools, uh, you know, without heavy equipment and machinery. Uh, uh, Archaeologists have have unearthed some of the old walls that they believe were the ones that were around in Nehemiah's time. And and so they they think that the wall would have been about 12 feet tall and about uh, uh, 8 feet wide. So this is not just like a little garden wall that we've been talking about. This is a a fortifying wall, 12 feet tall, 8 feet wide, and about 2.5 miles long. And so this is a pretty significant project to be doing by hand and to accomplish in 52 days. It's such an accomplishment that the scripture says that even its opponents recognize that there's only one way this could have been pulled off. Verse 16 says this, when our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. How many are thankful for the help of our God? Amen. But here's the thing about this story. As we've been reading it, nowhere in Nehemiah is there an overt miracle. Nowhere. Nowhere is there a a supernatural moment or a divine intervention. Nowhere do we see like just miraculously overnight they woke up and the wall was finished. We don't see that in the story. And yet we see here that it was with the help of our God that they pulled it off. There's no miracle, but what there was was focus. And with focus, there was determination. Nehemiah had been so burdened by what was, and he had such a compelling and inspiring vision for what could be, that he rallied the people with determination and intentionality to work the plan to see change and transformation come to his city and to his people. Brick by brick, we've been talking about. The people labored. There weren't shortcuts. There weren't any life hacks. There was nothing to speed up the process or make it easier. They faithfully stayed on task, grinding it out. And God was in it with them. God was giving them fortitude and strength. Philippians 2.13 says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. If God gives you a desire, if God calls you, if God sets you on mission, God will give you the power to accomplish what he's called you to do, right? We we hear that God equips those that he calls, and we see that happening right here. Can I encourage you today that there might be some parts of your life that God's given you a vision to rebuild, 
Maybe you're saying, you know what, I need to get my finances healthy and in order. I want to be able to give generously, but right now I don't even know where I'm at financially. I need to get that in order. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know, I just need to work on my marriage. I just want to, to invest and to rebuild some of the walls of my marriage. Maybe you're thinking about some habits and some unhealthy patterns that you're like, I need to kick these habits and I need to establish some new ones. And sometimes you might look to God and say, God, this would be a lot easier if you just bailed me out. Right? How many times do we pray, say, God, I want the bailout. I want the miracle. Give me the divine intervention, the supernatural, you know, intervention. And God doesn't seem to be bringing it. But God is still in it with you. I was thinking, that I didn't ask her for permission, but, but Holly, we, <laughs> this isn't embarrassing, but, but you might not know this because she leads worship every week. She's like, where is he going with this? Uh, for a number of years, Holly had vocal nodules. Uh, that means like, uh, like little lumps on her, on her vocal cords or lumps or divots, I'm not sure which. Anyways, she couldn't sing. And singing really was damaging. And, uh, and so she prayed. She said, God, would you just heal me, touch me, do the miraculous in me? And she prayed that and prayed that. And one day, God just put this thought in her mind that she knew was from the Lord. When we talk about hearing from the Lord, like only once in my life has it been an audible voice like, Jeremy, this is what I want you to do. Only once. Most of the time, it's just a sense in my heart, I just know, I just, I just know what God is putting in there. It's just like this, this impression that I didn't have, and God spoke to Holly and said, I could heal you, but you would just damage your vocal cords again, because you haven't developed the practices and the discipline of warming up and treating them properly. You need to learn how to look after them. And so that was a process that Holly went through. How many know, sometimes we're like, God, I just want the bailout, Right? Like, I, I'm in debt, Lord, to bail me out. And sometimes God provides, but God also knows that there's principles we need to learn to be whole and healthy and strong. You know, sometimes we want the miracle, but God provides the opportunity for us to grow. Right? We want the bailout, but God says you actually need to learn the discipline that's going to keep you in a place of wholeness and health. Uh, God wants us to grow in faith, obedience, and discipline, you know, sometimes we want the easy way out, and God wants us to give us the opportunity to grow up. Maturity, not miracles, is the reward of faith. You know, sometimes we look and we're like, God, like, like I'm faithful, I have all this faith, and, and I just want to see miracles in my life. And, and we almost get to the place sometimes where we think, I deserve a miracle, because of how faithful I've been to you, how much faith I have. How many know that's not miracles, but it's maturity that's the reward of our faith. God wants to grow us uh, in our relationship with him. First John 1 verse 5 says, Those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know we are living in him. Not that we walk in the miraculous every day. But that we walk in his word and we walk in his ways. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. I want to encourage you today, don't inter interpret the grind that God's not with you. You know? Don't interpret the grind to mean that God's not with you. Sometimes God's in it with you, grinding it out. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah, helping them grow. Nehemiah had personally responded to the calling that God had placed on his life to be part of the solution, and he rallied others to be part of it with him. And in spite of the opposition, they pulled it off at a blistering pace with God's 
blessing. And so we've been talking about this opposition that's been coming against them and how they've been fighting against it, the opposition of discouragement and distraction, uh, of criticism and lies. But today I want to focus on two takeaways we see in the story of Nehemiah that were huge contributors to their success. So we're going to go back a little bit, rewind the tape to Nehemiah 4, verse 14. We read this a few weeks ago, but I was trying to hold on to this nugget because I wanted to get to it today. Nehemiah 4.14 says, Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. As Nehemiah looked at the mounting opposition, he rallied them and said, Fight! For your families. Let's do this together. Why do people fight? Usually they fight because they have a passion for something or they, they want to protect someone, right? And, and how many knows that there's nothing like fighting, like fighting with your family? This sermon today I've entitled Fighting with Your Family. Nehemiah says, I want you to fight for your family, but we're going to see in a moment he's also saying, I want you to fight with your family. Well, the internet is a wonderful place at times, and uh, there's a whole segment of the internet uh, called That's How the Fight Started. And as I got looking at it, I was looking at some stories about how family fights start. One evening, a man's wife sat down on the couch beside him as he was flipping through the channels and asked, what's on TV? Dust, he replied. And that's how the fight started. A woman decided one year to buy her husband a cemetery plot for a Christmas gift. The package came complete with the plot, the casket, and the headstone. The next year, she didn't get him anything. When he asked, what's up with that? She replied, you still haven't used the gift I gave you last year. <laughs> That's how the, the fight started. <laughs> well, I'll talk to you about fighting not just for your family, but with your family. See, as Nehemiah rallied together the, the, the family or the, the, the people of God, we see that there were generations united around this cause. Nehemiah 3.12 talks in this little list of all the people who were involved in, in, uh, in the reconstruction work. It says, Shalom, son of Halohesh, and his daughters repaired the next section. Isn't that amazing that Shaloesh was doing Family Sunday with his daughters? They were together building and fighting, brick by brick, standing guard for the cause that God had called them to. How many know that getting generations to work together can be challenging at times and fun, right? Every generation has their own uniqueness. I thought we could have a little bit of fun. It's Family Sunday. You know that every generation has their own vocabulary. And uh, so I need a kid to help me this morning. And I need a grandparent. Any kids or any grandparents here? <laughs> grandparent age, people, any kids? Any kids who want to come? And, and don't worry, I, in case you're tired, I've got some stools for you. So come on up here. And uh, I just want to ask you a couple questions about whether or not you know what different words means to different generations. All right, so who's my kid this morning? Any kid volunteers? Kid, junior high, anyone? Nobody wants to be part of it this morning. Where's the grandparents at? I need a grand any grandparents with a kid with you? You could bring them up. With you, okay. All right, Neil, come on up, Neil. 
Very good. Thanks for your willingness. Everyone give Neil a hand. Okay, perfect. The two of you come in. Neil. Check one, two. Okay, come on up here. There you go. Do you know this guy? Of course you do. Who's he? Gramps. He's your Gramps. All right, here we go. So I got some words, slang words from different generations. All right, and so I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask you if you know, if you could tell me what the words mean to the other generation, okay? So do you want to go first, or do you want Gramps to go first? You want him to go first? Okay, Neil. Uh, here we go. Um, if you were to ghost somebody, what does that mean to the current generation? Uh, it means that you no longer respond to text messages, social media posts. Whoa, all right. Very good. Neil, Neil's up on it. He's, he's, he's good. Okay, I'm going to have to get some harder ones for Neil. Neil's a digital missionary. Did you know that? Neil has his own Instagram mission uh, and online, so he's, he's connected. So that's really cool. Okay, here we go. Uh, if something is the bee's knees, what does that mean? I don't know. You don't know? Do you want to take a guess? Oh, that's the bee's knees. Any idea? No guesses? You want to ask Gramps? Ask him. Ask him, what does it mean, the bee's knees? No? Okay. <laughs> Gramps, what does the bee's knees mean? The best. It's the best. It's cool. The bee's knees. Okay. All right. So now, now I got to go a little harder here because I know that you're in touch here. So if I said that you had to cop something, what does that mean right now? I, I got to cop that uh, to a student. Uh, well, in my background, I meant to steal something. <laughs> you would think so, but to cop it means you got to get one. You got to buy it. Those shoes are so cool, I got to cop those. So that's what it means, all right? Here we go. Okay. If someone was having a gas, what do you think that means? <laughs> if you have a gas, what do you think that means? You're having fun. You're having fun. All right. That could have gone a couple ways, but you are, you are right. You're right. Okay. All right. I'm going to give you another one, okay? If someone was to slip you some skin, what does that mean? Slip me some skin. Shake hands. Shake hands. Give me a high five. Okay. All right, Neil. Uh, here we go. Um, if that's a bop, that's a bop. I have no idea. <laughs> Do you know what that's a bop is? I mean, that's a good song. This is a bop. It's a cool, a good song. Bop your head to it. Okay. Who is your home skillet? <laughs> your mom is your home skillet. All right. That's a good answer. Right? That means that's your friend. Okay. Um, Neil, if someone is looking snatched, what does that mean? If you're looking snatched. Not looking good? <laughs> you would think so. It's the opposite. You're looking good. You're looking snatched. All right. Okay. And uh, let's do one more. Um, talk to the hand. Do you know what talk to the hand means? High five. High five? Maybe it means don't talk to me. Talk to the hand. Okay. All right. And here we go. Oh, let's see. Uh, oh, hmm. 
If, uh, Neil, if I said that's cap or that's no cap, what would that mean? If it was a cap, if you're capping me, what does that mean? It's good. Oh, not quite. It means, cap means that's a lie. And no cap means no lie. That's the truth. Awesome. Would you give it up to our, our contestants this morning? Thanks for participating, guys. Very good. How many know it's hard sometimes to get the generations speaking the same language, let alone working together, right? And yet we see in the kingdom of God that we got to work together in our generations, in our families. Despite generational differences, Nehemiah rallies the families of Judah to work together. Young and old, male, female, they're investing in the work of God, fighting for their family and fighting with their family. How many know serving God is an intergenerational affair? You know, one of the words I love, I love to use the word intergenerational more than multi-generational because multi-generation, that's, that's okay. That just means that there's multiple generations present, right? That's a good thing to do, but I like the word intergenerational because it has this, this connotation of generations working together. I want our church to be an intergenerational church. I want our worship team to be intergenerational and our prayer teams and our missions teams. And our, I love this week, I, I heard that there was some kids at our food pantry. They're getting ready for next weekend. We had kids there helping sort uh, intergenerational generational ministry. You know, I've said this before, you probably heard it, that God has no grandchildren, right? Every generation in your family needs to serve God for themselves. Psalm 78 says, each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles or, and obeying his commandments. You know, you can't pass down your faith. Faith isn't like a family heirloom that you could pass down like a watch or, or, you know, silver. You know, no one's grandfathered into the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2, uh, 8 says to us that God saved you by his grace when you believed. We each come to that place before God where we have to make that decision for ourselves. You can't pass down your faith, but what we can do is intentionally create environments and cultivate opportunities for faith and relationship in God to grow. That's really what Family Sunday is about to us. We want to cultivate environments where every generation of our church is working together and, and experiencing the love of God together, having opportunity to grow. We don't want to just do ministry to children and to youth, but we want to do ministry with children and with youth. And so that's a priority to us. I love how Lisa said that. Yeah, your seat will get kicked, right? And yeah, people are going to get a little hungry. If you, maybe you can get in there and get some goldfish crackers yourself. <laughs> but here's the thing. When children are young, they'll do what we tell them. But when they get a little older, they're going to do what we show them. Right? So the family of God, we want to show them, model for them, a family of God worshiping together. To pass on our faith, we need to lead by example, don't we? We see all through scripture, it's apprenticing. Apprenticing is always the model that God uses uh, to, for discipleship and spiritual investment. And so parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, best friends, older brothers, older sisters, what you can do to help your family grow and to, be, and to model this is the, the best thing you can do is really cultivate a flourishing relationship with Jesus for yourself and to show your kids what that looks like. 
Show them the discipline that goes into it. You know, maybe you're here and your kids have all grown and left home or maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you don't have siblings. Maybe, maybe you, don't have much of, uh, you don't have a family. But, but Jesus, he's constantly expanding the definition of family. By the time Jesus goes to the cross, we see him saying to, to Mary and to his disciples, like, this is your brother. This is your mother. He's saying, this, this is the family of God. We are all together part of God's larger family. And we're invested in the kingdom. So whether you're married or single, divorced or widowed, kids or no kids, you are part of the family of God. And God's calling us to this great work to do, to fight with our family for the cause of Christ. You know, leadership is merely influence. And we all influence somebody. You might not look at yourself as a leader, but you have influence over somebody, whether they're in your home or in your neighborhood, in your workplace. And so the question is, how do we leverage our influence to be an example of hope, an example of love and of kindness to the people we're leading, especially to the next generation, right? You know, if you look back on your spiritual walk of faith and you think about how have I known Christ and come to grow in Christ, you know, you might look back and think about the top three sermons that you've heard, right? You might think, hmm, yeah, that Pastor Jerry, he preached three sermons that really changed my life, Right? You can't even remember hardly what I preached last week, I'm pretty sure, right? I've often wondered like, if I should preach the same sermon back to back sometimes, just to see if I could get away with it. But you could probably think about the top three people who've influenced your life, the top three people who've invested in you and poured into you. See, raising a God-focused generation isn't just about the information that we give, but it's about the example that we set. So we want to be a God-focused generation, telling the upcoming generations about this faith in God that we found and including them on the journey. We want to live out that faith with them and in front of them. So the point of our lives is to point to Jesus. You know, too often as parents, we're sometimes tempted to believe that the goal of parenting is to raise good kids, right? Good kids is good, but it assumes that moral behavior is the goal. You know, kids that are quiet in public and they don't make a mess at their restaurant and they have great attitude, but that's great. But at the end, that's not what we're looking for. There's a higher goal than raising good kids and it's raising godly kids. See, what we're calling them to and pointing them to is more than just obeying the rules. See, Christianity isn't defined by rule keeping. It's defined by relationship with Jesus. And so we don't want to just have good kids. We want to have godly kids who are in relationship with Jesus for themselves, who are led by the Spirit of God. So our goal is should be more than just helping them avoid trouble, more than helping them uh, be protected from hurt and from harm. You know, those are important things. We want to do more than just uh, help them get through school and, and become, you know, productive members of, and contributing members of society. We want them to be flourishing in the kingdom of God. And, and, and we want to propel them to action for the cause of Christ. We need to have this kind of vision for our family. And so I think as Nehemiah rallied the family, they were, says that they were building and battling. In one hand, they had the tools to build, and in the other hand, they had the weapons to fight. Our children need the tools to build lives of faith. They need the weapons to fight against the attacks of the enemy. They need to know what's true. They need to build a city of hope. But they need to know that there's gonna be an opposition to their life, that there's someone who wants to derail them and destroy them. Here's the thing, I love our church. 
I love our kids' ministry. I love Pastor Lisa who's just up here. I love our youth ministry. I love Pastor Riley and his team. But as much as I love them, and I'm so appreciative of them coming alongside my kids and giving them an environment to thrive and to grow in Christ, here's the thing. I'm not relying on them to help my kids become spiritual and godly kids. I need to know that that's my primary responsibility. So I'm thankful that our church comes alongside us in that journey. But as parents, we can uh, lead our kids in growing in godliness. Now here's the thing. You can't make your kids grow in God. Some of you are here and you have adult kids and you're like, you know, we, we tried, we did what we could and, and there's no guilt or shame in that. There's, there's no like A plus B equals C. But all we can do is, that, is, is know that we can't make our kids grow in God, but we can ensure that they know about God and they've been in the presence of God, that we've led the way in those things and allow the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. So our goal is to fight with our family. Our second takeaway, as we can see, that led to their success is found in the minutia of chapter 3. In the minutia of chapter 3, we skipped over this a few weeks ago, uh, because it's just a list of all the people who were involved in building the city and, and uh, what, who the family were and who their grandparents were. Uh, as you read Nehemiah 3, you, you kind of see, it's like, ah, Joan, I know Joan, that's like Isabel's granddaughter, you know, and they, all this kind of like, you know, the lineage is all written there of who was involved and, and, uh, and it's all there. But in the middle of all this lineage, there, there's something that stood out to me. It doesn't just talk about what parts of the wall they contributed to, but listen to what it says in Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses, and you tell me if you could tell the theme. Next, in verse 10, Jedidiah, son of Harumath, repaired the wall across from his own house. Verse 23, after them, Benjamin and Hassab repaired the section across from their house, and Azariah, son of Messiah, the grandson of Ananiah, repaired the section across from his house. Verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his house. Next, Zadok, son of Immer, also rebuilt the wall across from his own house. And verse 30. Meshulam, son of Berechiah, rebuilt the wall across from where he lived. And you, do you see the pattern? Brick by brick. Brick by brick. Building where? Someone above and beyond. We see in this text that someone above and beyond building large sections of the house, but everyone was called to do something, and many of them rebuilt the wall across from where they lived. The second takeaway is not only did they fight with their family, but that they filled in the gaps where they lived. They filled in the gaps where they lived. You know, Jesus asked what was the most important way we could contribute and be part of the kingdom of God. And this was his response in Matthew 22. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Can we just talk about our neighbors for a minute? Neighbors come in all kinds of varieties. How many love your neighbors? You don't have to show your hands. How many love your neighbors? Right? How many have a little less than love for your neighbors, right? Maybe there's a little tense relationship. Neighbors come in all sorts of varieties and personalities. How many have the commuter neighbor? The commuter neighbor is like the garage goes up, they drive out, and their garage goes down, right? Then a little later in the day, the garage goes back up, they drive in, and the garage goes down, and you never see them other than that. That's the commuter, right? 
Anyone have the hey neighbor? The hey neighbor usually shows up on, on garbage day, like, hey neighbor, right? And that's about the extent of the relationship, just a little head nod. It's always up, like, hey neighbor, right? How many know that there's the grump? Or the grump is often, you know, maybe closely mirrored by the sheriff. Anyone live in a neighborhood with the sheriff of the neighborhood, right? Like, oh, I see that this is going wrong, you know, this, this, this is a strata, you know, you're not allowed to do that here, right? How many have the DJ? The DJ is always playing the music, always going on, right? DJ is great. How many know the DJ rarely plays the music that you want to hear? The DJ in my backyard, like, I always feel like I'm on a cruise ship, you know? Like, like no joke, like, whatever you would hear in a cruise, like, Copacabana and Sweet Caroline, always going to my, my neighbor, I always feel like I'm on a cruise, it's great. Uh, the chef neighbor, like, sometimes you get the chef neighbor, uh, they, they often appear in uh, apartment buildings, uh, where you share common hallways, and those hallways just fill with all the smells and the aromas of your neighbor's cooking, better or worse. It's all there, right? We have the night owl. We have the early bird. Uh, we have the hoarder, right? The one whose yard's just filling up with stuff. Uh, we have the handyman, right? That's the neighborhood, the neighbor that has all the tools and the advice. Whenever you need something, you just go to their garage. I like the handyman because my garage stays clean and pristine. And then I just go to their garage and they have whatever they, whatever I need is in their garage somewhere. And then there's the ninja, right? Never seen, never heard. You would never know that they were there. You've never seen them. It's just a rumor. Perhaps one of these describes your neighbor, you know, or maybe it describes you, Right? But living with our actual neighbors can be hard sometimes, right? Like sometimes our neighbors are wonderful and sometimes they're just not the people that we would choose to live beside if we had the choice, right? We have neighbors and sometimes they encroach on our personal time. They, they want to chat when, we, when we've got somewhere to go, right? Uh, they, they take up space and, and, and our privacy, they're just always there looking over our fence when we're in our backyard doing whatever we're doing. I don't know, Right? We see our neighbors when they're not on their best behavior, and our neighbors see us when we're not on ours. Sometimes they hear us through the windows. That sounded creepy. I hope they're not like at the window. I'm just like, I was picturing open windows hearing us. Here's the thing about neighbors. You can't just drop a few lines about Jesus and then they kind of think, oh, I'm never going to see them again. So I just need like a bold, courageous moment to, to talk to them about Jesus and then I can run away, right? And say so we live with them and, and we share with them. We do life with them. Uh, Eric Hoffer, he says, it's easier to love humanity as a whole than to love one's neighbor. What he's talking about is easier to say, like, I love people. I have compassion, I have an open heart towards people, but how many know when we think about loving humanity, that kind of gives us uh, the easy way out of not having to love the person right in front of us, right? It's easier to say we love humanity. That's big, that's broad, but how do I love the person standing right in front of me? The problem is if we fail to take Jesus' definition of neighbor, like Jesus is expanding the definition of neighbor, right? When, when, the, when the man comes to Jesus and says, who's my neighbor? Jesus is basically saying, like, everyone's your neighbor. We're like, okay, that's great, right? But at the risk of saying everyone's my neighbor, that means that I don't always think about the person right in front of me and how I interact with them one-on-one. -on -one. If I say that I love everyone, it can sometimes mean that I actually show love to no one. But that's not what we're going for here. 
And so uh, I want to do a pop quiz today. Anyone like pop quizzes? How much time do I have for my pop quiz? All right, Riley, can you uh, get a few people? Uh, I got some pop quiz sheets coming out, and uh, they're going to distribute this sheet to you. We're doing a pop quiz right now. This is not a test. Some of you are like, I hate tests. No pressure. This is not a test. This is a quiz. Quiz. There's no pressure with quizzes. There's no pass or fail. Uh, and uh, this is called the block map exercise. And so my awesome crew is going to come and hand out the block map exercise pop quiz. For those of you watching online, you're going to see this diagram on the screen. And uh, you can take note of it. And you might have to create your own version of it. Pop quiz. I really like pop quizzes, right? There should be a pencil in the chair in front of you. Hopefully there's one there or you have one in your purse. Uh, write your name on the top of the sheet and you'll get one mark automatically, right? There you go, just like school, right? There, you're already passing. <laughs> one for one, you, you pass. So this, no, no pressure on the pop quiz. Kids, if you're with your parents, you want to sit beside them. You want to snuggle in close so you can see the sheet too. So you can be part of the quiz. You can take this quiz as a family. Uh, you can share your answers with your neighbor. Uh, but it's only going to work if your neighbor is the person who lives with you. Or else it's not going to work. Okay? Don't copy off people who don't live at your house because then you're going to fail. Just saying. Okay. We're almost ready. Let me make sure we get a chance. Okay. So on this sheet, you're going to see eight boxes, and at the center of those eight boxes is a little black house. That's your house. So you could write your address, write your address number on, on there, uh, just whatever your address is, street number, just put it right there on that black house. That's your house. And now the eight boxes around you represent your eight closest neighbors. So maybe you have an apartment, maybe you have, uh, you know, uh, uh, a community that you, you live in, complex, your eight closest neighbors. So what I want you to do is think about where you live, think about your eight closest neighbors, and write down the names of the people who live in those homes of your eight closest neighbors. Do what you can. Maybe you live out in the country and your neighbors are quite far from you, but, but do what you can. Write your names if you can. If you don't know their names, uh, it might be like bald guy or something, or you know, bearded bearded man. Write <laughs> write what you can. Man who plays music at all, all hours of the night. Write their names. Okay, now under their names, I want you to write something that you know about them. Write everything you know about them. Write write where, where do they work. What are their hobbies? Where were they born? <laughs> do, do what you can. Right? Don't, don't just, not just things you can see, like they have a red car or yellow, you know, flowers. But actually, what do you know about them? I'll give you a, a few more seconds. You might need to take this quiz home and work on it a little later, depending on how much you know about your neighbors. Okay, and so here's a third thing. On the line below that, write anything you know about them that's deeper than that. What are their dreams? What are their desires? What do they fear? What do they struggle with? What's their spiritual journey been like? 
Some of you are still going. So I, I want to give you a, a moment to do this. Some of you are done already. Here's the fun thing about this exercise. Did you know that only 10% of people can do number one and write down the names of their eight neighbors? Only 10%. Only 3% can do number two, writing down something they know about them on a deeper level. And only 1% can do number three, writing something down at the core level of, of what their desires are. This is just a fun exercise. Like I said, this isn't a, a pass or fail. This is, this is just an example for us to say, how well do I know and how am I connecting in my neighborhood? I was thinking about this today. Imagine we've had about 300 people in our services in person, get about another 100 people that watch online during the week. Imagine 400 people, if they began to see themselves as the ambassadors of Jesus and the pastors of their neighborhood, what could God do through us. Imagine 400 people. Let's, let's make it a little easier because we have some babies and we have some people. Let's say 350 people. If we average that by the average household uh, um, uh, size, in this place today, we'd have about 140 households represented. 140 households in our region. And if our 140 households each had eight neighbors, any math wizards, that's 1,120 homes that we live adjacent to every week. And if those 1,120 homes, if they each had 2.5 people living in them, according to statistics, 2.5, that would be 2,800 people being cared for, loved on, prayed over, shared with the gospel of Jesus Christ, invited to church. Can you imagine? If our church was 2,800 people, because we'd all been able to reach our neighbors with this good news of Jesus Christ, they might not all come, but some of them would come if we invited them. You know, I know it's impossible to reach everyone, but we all live next to someone, don't we? We all live next to someone, and, and I don't want it to leave it to chance. I don't want to stand before God one day and say, you know what, I was hoping someone somewhere would randomly connect with my neighbor about Jesus. I was hoping that somewhere they would bump into a Christian knowing that I live next door to them every day. I want to be the pastor for my community. I want to be the pastor for my neighborhood. I want to be the one who's building the wall across from where I live brick by brick. I want to be the ambassador for Jesus where I live. And as we've been talking about this idea of having dreams and visions for our community, for our church, how do we know that it actually has to start with us having a dream and a vision for our own life? The dream and vision that I am the pastor of my neighborhood, that I am the ambassador of Jesus in my community. We need to be saying, God, what gap are you asking me to fill? What gap is our family being commissioned to fill together? How are we gonna rebuild our neighborhood? Where I live, where I work, where I play. Starts with us simply saying, Jesus, give me a vision that's bigger than just my life. Give me a vision for your kingdom here in Penticton, here in the Okanagan, here wherever you're watching from online. We begin to say, what step can I take towards loving my neighbor more this week? I'm gonna invite you to stand all across this place. 
And uh, the altar call is going to be a little different today. Instead of having you come to the front for prayer, and, uh, and, for, and, and we'll do that in a minute. We'll, we'll have opportunity for you to be prayed for. I want us to always have that opportunity. But, but here's what I want you to just close your eyes where you're at. And just say this. Um, what could you do as a step towards loving your neighbor more this week? I have a couple ideas. For some of us, it might be as simple as learning their name. Maybe that's what God's putting on your heart. For some of us, we've had neighbors for a while and there's some forgiveness that needs to be given. For some of us, it means hanging out in our front yard instead of the back. How can we be present? How can we be accessible? Some of you need to walk your dog just for the sake of being able to reach your neighbor. <laughs> Pastor Ralph said that this week. <laughs> Having a dog is the best outreach and evangelism tool. Some of you are gonna go get a dog. Don't blame it on me. <laughs> I don't have a dog. My family has a dog, so I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Maybe it's making an extra dessert. Maybe that's your evangelism step this week. I need to make an extra dessert for someone in my neighborhood. Maybe this week I'm going to go for a walk. Instead of just being the hey neighbor with the head nod, I'm actually going to stop and talk. I'm going to ask them, tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself, brick by brick building lives of faith in a city of hope. Not alone, but fighting with my family. Building with my family. This is the most amazing thing that as Nehemiah was saying, there were families on the wall building across from where they lived. And yet two and a half miles, they built this wall because they were all stretched out. And even though they couldn't see everyone who was part of the rebuilding process, they know someone somewhere alongside of them was doing the work of God where they were. This week, imagine all of us going to where we work, going to where we play, going to our schools, all doing the work of God where we are. Imagine what God can do, brick by brick, brick by brick. Heavenly Father, I just thank you today for my family. Thank you for my friends, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that in this moment today, God, that this would be a holy moment, that we would be challenged. Lord God, that we would be reminded, God, that there is a vision for our lives, that there's a calling on our lives, Lord, that's bigger than just being good people, Lord, just building a life and a career for ourselves and retiring and satisfaction, God, but there's a kingdom, a kingdom of God to be established through our church, through our individual lives, through our families. Lord, I pray right now for those that are just even thinking today about the spiritual state of their family. God, maybe they have children that are far from you and maybe they've been raised in the ways of God or maybe we came to faith later in life and we didn't have that opportunity to pour into our kids. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do something in them. Do something deep in them, God, that you would stir their hearts to pursue you. Lord God, I pray for all of us in this place, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a vision beyond ourselves. Give us opportunities, we pray. Lord God, I pray that we would receive fruitfulness, Lord. I pray that seeds that we've sown over many years in our neighbors, Lord, I pray this week as we take an extra step of faith, God, to maybe turn a good conversation to a God conversation. Uh, whatever it is, Lord God, I pray that as we step out in faith and courage, Lord, that you would meet us there. And we would find that you're already at work in the hearts of the people around us. And that we just get to be part of the journey. In Jesus' name we pray.